Well, there you go. Now you have me. <laughs> Not quite like a circus, is it? But anyway. Well, thank you so much again for, for joining us this morning. And, and you know, again, I'd just like to express what a wonderful privilege it is. It, it, it's just so beautiful for us to be able to, to join together and to share in, in some worship, to um, take communion together. And, and as you know, we, we really do believe that communion is so central to, to Christian faith. It's, it's a good thing for us to remember regularly what Jesus did for us. To remember the great love that God has for us expressed through the sacrifice of his son that we might not suffer the penalty for sin. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, when, you, when I sit down and meditate on that, when I, I realise how unworthy I am in myself, but yet the Bible says I am the righteousness of God through Christ. It is an incredible thing. So um, let me uh, just take a moment or two to bring up our, our um, PowerPoint slides for this morning. There we go. We should be able to share that. That's all good. Okay, I think we're just about there. It'll take a few seconds to come through. All right. So, folks, um, as, as we have been doing uh, this year, we've been doing a, a scripture memory verse every week. And uh, what I love about this is that by the end of the year, after we've been through 52 weeks of, of scripture, um, those, those scriptures that we memorise, they form a, a, the core of what Christianity is all about. And that, that's one of the things I love about these, these exercises. And so the memory verse for this week, it actually follows on from last week's, which was Psalm 100 verse 4. This week it's Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good. And his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. For the Lord is good. There is nothing bad in him. He is goodness in all its fullness. Isn't it a wonderful thing? His love is never ending. It never ceases. There is nothing that will stop God from loving us, and he's faithful. He is faithful eternally. How good is that? How good is that? Well, folks, let me move on now to our, our discussion point uh, for this week. And, um, you know, the Lord really impressed me uh, during the week to say a word or two about women. <laughs> And uh, look, I, I know that often on, on uh, Mother's Day, the pastor's wife gets the microphone. <laughs> now, 
I'm not doing that today because I don't. I never want uh, women in ministry to become maybe making a point once a year or or anything like that, because. I, I believe and uh, praise God our movement believes that there are really no restrictions, no constraints on the role that women can play in ministry. And so I want to touch on a couple of points going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And, and I actually do think that the way in which we understand Genesis influences so much of what we understand about the rest of the Bible. So I want to first make the point that men and women are created equal. That is, there is no hierarchy in our society that suggests, at least in Christian society, that suggests that men somehow have more value or more authority than women do. If we have a look in Genesis 1 and Genesis 5. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, and Genesis 5, verses 1 to 2, the Hebrew word Adam is used. And it actually has the meaning of human person or humanity. It's not until a little later that the man, Adam, is given his name. So in that initial record of the creation of human beings, there is no distinction in terms of equality between men and women. God said, let us make man, that is humanity or the human person, in our image. And then he goes on to say, male and female. Male and female. The verses in Genesis 1 and and five, identify male and female, but make no distinction as to equality. Now, in a way for women, that's both a good and a bad thing, because what it means is that women have exactly the same dominion authority as do men. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, where God is blessing human beings, he's giving us all, regardless of our sex, the same dominion authority. And of course in Genesis 2, we actually get the same accountability. So as far as the creation record is concerned, there is no distinction at all between men and women. There's no hierarchical relationship. And really there's no evidence that that was the case until after the fall. And in, in some senses, the way in which women have been treated through 
the last few thousand years, up until quite recently, in fact, is the outcome or one of the outcomes of the fall. It's actually caused by the sin which has beset the whole of creation. So if we go right back to the very creation record, we see that God makes no distinction between men and women in terms of their value. Much has been made of the fact that the woman was referred to as the helper in Genesis 2.18. Now God, as it were, concludes that nothing in all of creation is a suitable helper for Adam. And he declares that he will make a helper. The Hebrew word is Azer. Now it's very interesting when you look at this word because it never ever means subservience in any of its uses in the whole of the Old Testament. The word has connotations of vitally important and powerful acts of rescue and support, never subservience. The word Azer is used 21 times in the Old Testament and no fewer than 16 uses refer to God as helper. In fact, well, I was going to say, um, well, whose son was Eli, um, Eli, Eli Azer, Eliezer, Eliezer, was that Abraham or Jacob? It was Jacob, Jacob's son, Eliezer. Eli, God, Azer is my helper. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the word always, always, always is used in the context of power, of rescue and of salvation and, and support. So I would suggest that where some commentators, some writers have suggested that the word which is translated in English as helper means somebody who supports the man, the leader, my humble suggestion is that they have mistakenly interpreted what God had in mind when he created the helper. In fact, some commentaries I've read say that the word Azer is used 29 times in the Old Testament, but I guess it, it depends on a lot of things because um, there are different forms of the word uh, which are used as well. 16 times the word refers to God as helper, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, God is pretty, pretty powerful. So, you know, if, if, if God created a helper in some senses like God for, for Adam, then she's a mighty, mighty creation uh, 
indeed. That oh, they're not progressing. Okay, they're progressing for me, but all right. Just um, I'll just have to stop this and start again. I'm I'm really sorry about this. I can't necessarily observe the the um. Yeah, I I can't necessarily observe the the frozen screen. So hopefully now we're up to a slide that's titled Woman as Weaker Morally. I want to make a great jump, a great leap now from uh, the book of Genesis to some passages in the, the New Testament. And I've actually heard this preached. I have heard it from the pulpit that 1 Peter 3, 7 uh, refers to wives as weaker. In uh, the King James Version, the expression, the weaker vessel, is used. Now, the word literally means not as physically strong. So the literal meaning of the word weaker in 1 Peter 3, 7 is that she's not as physically strong as the man is. And that is certainly borne out by our experience, isn't it? Unfortunately, the term weaker vessel or the weaker one has often been interpreted as weaker morally in the light of 1 Timothy 2.14. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.14 says this, and it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. Now there's been a, a lot written about this and, and whole doctrines, doctrines held by some denominations in fact, have been based on this scripture. Now I just want to suggest to you that it is very, very dangerous to build doctrine or, or, or a theology, if you like, or, or dogma around just one or two scraps of scripture. It's what we call proof texting. I believe that the safe way, what I call the safe way to read the Bible is to read it in the context of the whole council of the Bible. So if we read something from the Apostle Paul, for example, that appears to contradict our understanding way back in Genesis, we need to sit down and try to work out something about the context. Now, as you would know, the epistles, the letters that Paul wrote to various churches, they addressed issues that were arising at the time he was writing. <clears throat> and so the context for his epistles, generally speaking, is issues of the time in specific churches. And so I am more persuaded by those who interpret 1 Timothy 2.14 in particular as Paul addressing a concern about some women in a particular church context. 
I think it's particularly important to understand that in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, where what we call original sin is actually recorded, the serpent addresses the woman using the plural you. That's in verse 1. And of course, it's never clear in English. Because when we just read the English, the word you is both singular and plural. I um, had a bit of a text uh, discussion with my daughters this morning and, and said, the problem with the English language is that it doesn't distinguish between you and use, right? Because a lot of people use the term use incorrectly to um, refer to the plural uh, of you. But actually, we came to the conclusion that use is not a good word. We should use yow. Yow, come now. You know what I mean? But uh, it is a bit of an issue when we're reading English translations of the Bible that we, we have to sometimes interpret whether you is meant to be singular or plural. And then a little later on in, in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3, 6, in fact, most English translations record that Adam was with Eve. Not all of them, but most English translations of the Bible record that Adam was with Eve. So actually, original sin, in fact, wasn't committed by Eve. They both were in it together. <laughs> now that might be a bit new, a bit bit of news to some people. It wasn't the serpent who deceived Eve, and then Eve kind of forcing or deceiving Adam into sinning. Adam and Eve were together. The best interpretation is that the serpent was actually speaking to both Adam and Eve at the same time. And uh, Paul uses scripture from the Old Testament sometimes fairly loosely to make a point in a specific context. And so I think the safe way in which to interpret 1 Peter 3, 7 is in the literal way in the sense that women are not as physically strong as, strong as men, not that they are weaker morally. Paul was addressing a particular concern about some women in the context of the letter that he wrote to Timothy. And what we call original sin was equally an act of Adam as it was of Eve. Let me turn now to some scripture which... And I think we're stuck again. Let me um, well, let me sort this one out. We're totally stuck now. Just, just um, bear with me for a moment or two, and we see if we can get these the slides back, back up again. Yeah, I'm not sure whether that 
might have worked for you. Okay, so we're there now. I do apologise for that. I, I want to move on and talk a little bit about Proverbs 31. So what we've looked at so far is the original meaning of the creation record, that women and men were not created in some kind of hierarchical relationship. They were both given dominion, power and authority and the reference in uh, Genesis 2 to looking after the land, looking after the Garden of Eden applies equally to men and to women. And passages in the New Testament that are sometimes interpreted as giving the man headship over the woman are probably not being interpreted correctly. At least that's my, my position. I want to speak at least briefly about uh, the woman of Proverbs 31. Now, I, I happen to think that this is a celebration of what God has placed in the heart of women. It's literally Solomon's mother describing the kind of woman he should marry. Uh, and I'll use the word kind there, in a, in a, if you like, in a generic sense. It's not about the specific woman he should marry because there's no superwoman who has ever lived on this planet who could do everything that is listed in Proverbs 31 from verse 10 onwards. It would be an impossibility. Um, a woman wouldn't be able to rest at all if she was to accomplish everything which is listed in Proverbs 31 verses 10 through to 29. I would argue that this passage is actually a celebration of womanhood. And it's unfortunate that down through the years this proverb seems to have been neglected in terms of uh, theology and in terms of church doctrine. And it really has only been since about the middle of last century that I think we've begun to understand the fullness of its meaning. Incidentally, um, just harking back to Paul and the New Testament and his writing on, on women, there are actually 13 women who were in positions of authority and power in the early New Testament church who were recognised and or commended by Paul in his writing. At least 13. In fact, there's at least as many women's names mentioned in the connection uh, with what we would today think of as church ministry, as ministry of the gospel. There's at least as many there as there are men. So Paul definitely did not have an issue with women in ministry. Let me come back to Proverbs 31 verses 10 through to 29. I'm going to, to read it and, and comment on it using the um, New Living 
translation, which I think is an easy translation and a pretty accurate translation for us to work from. So verse 10, who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her and she will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. So the Proverbs 31 woman is a faithful woman in the broadest sense of the word. This is not a reference to sexual conduct. This is a reference to faithfulness in its broadest context. Her husband can trust her. That's not qualified in any way, shape or form. He can trust her as his equal. Verse 13. She finds wool and flax and busily spins it. She is like merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up before dawn to prepare breakfast for her household and plan the day's work for her servant girls. So here we see the wife as a manager and as an entrepreneur. She is generating income through business activity, through interacting with the world of commerce. I find verse 14 very interesting. She is like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. It, it, it is amazing to me how much wealth is created through trade and, and ships in the Old Testament represent trade. In the book of Ezekiel, there is a detailed description of the wealth of the king of Tyre, which was generated through trade. Solomon generated massive wealth through trade. There's also a description of the wealth created by trade in the book of Revelation, and we will come to that in a couple of weeks' time. Interestingly, in the case of Solomon, the power of trade was enhanced for positive purposes because in Solomon's time, the people lived in peace and each, each family lived in a compound. They were safe. They were well-fed. They were protected. They had a good economic and social life. Sadly, in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, the same kind of wealth is generated through trade, but is not generated with the right heart and it is not used for good purpose. But here in verse 14, we see another reference. She is like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. It's a reference to her interactions with the world of commerce as a manager and as an entrepreneur. Verse 16, she goes to inspect a field and buys it. With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She is energetic and strong, a hard worker. She makes, her, she makes sure her dealings are profitable. Her lamp burns late into the night. 
her hands a busy spinning thread, her fingers twisting fibre. Here again, we see the woman as an investor and as an entrepreneur. She's involved in the world of business, in the world of commerce. She has the wisdom, the wisdom to go and inspect a field and to know its true worth, she buys it. And with her earnings, she plants a vineyard. So she is involved in a productive enterprise. When I read these, these verses, I often actually think about my own wife, Jeanette, and my daughters, Ainsley and Lauren, because they fit this description. Amazing. The, especially verse 14, this whole thing about they're like merchant ships bringing food from afar. My wife and my daughters have a particular gifting in this area. It is absolutely amazing what blessings they bring into their households because of the way in which they engage with the world of commerce. Absolutely amazing. In fact, I think Ainsley's waiting for a package this morning to arrive because she diligently does her research. These days, of course, we're able to do a lot of things online. And her contribution to her household is to bring down total expenses because she manages to sniff out really solid bargains all the time. And in fact, as a family, we often pray before we shop that when we buy it will be a blessing to everybody, a blessing to the seller and a blessing to us as the buyers. And in fact, we don't go into places seeking discounts or anything like that. We, we just believe God will show us the way through. And um, my wife and my daughters are just outstanding in these areas. They are really out. Look, seriously, you want to get alongside my daughters if you want to learn how to shop because they are brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And they're such a blessing to their husbands because of the way in which they exercise the gifting that God has placed in them and in all women. Verse 20. She extends a helping hand to the poor and opens her arm to the needy. Her arms, I should say, to the needy. She's a generous giver. And, and again, look, my own experience with my wife and my daughters, they shame me sometimes with their generosity. And uh, they are amazingly generous women. They care for the poor. They care for the needy. They extend their arms to those in need. Verse 21, she has no fear of winter for her household, for her household, for everyone has warm clothes. She's a planner. She plans ahead. She sees ahead and she makes provision for what will or might come. She makes her own bedspreads. She dresses in fine linen and purple gowns. She's elegant. How about that? She's elegant. Her husband is well known at the city gates where he sits with the other civic leaders. She makes belted linen garments and sashes to sell to the merchants. Again, here she is portrayed as an entrepreneur and a trader. 
Verse 25, she's clothed with strength and dignity and she laughs without fear of the future. When she speaks, her words are wise and she gives instructions with kindness. She carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. She's a wise counsellor who walks the talk. She's a wise counsellor who walks the talk. Verse 28 and 29, her children stand and bless her. Her children stand and bless her. Last night we had a Mother's Day Eve dinner. And because of coronavirus restrictions, some of them are being lifted today, but they weren't in force yesterday. Uh, we had a dinner via Zoom. So we had Lauren and Heath at our house. There were four of us at our house. And then Ainsley, Dave and the girls were at, were at their house. And we had dinner by Zoom. Well, guess what? Jeanette's children, literally, not, not literally, but they stood and praised her. They stood and praised her because of what she had sown into their lives. And her husband praised her. In fact, her husband bought her flowers. And I'm not a flower-buying husband, generally speaking. But um, no, this, this year I did something different. I actually ordered a posy of flowers online, which were, was actually delivered yesterday because I was pretty certain we'd be home at the time they were delivered. And we had a card written out because when you buy online, you can actually uh, nominate what you want written on the card. So this, this Proverbs 31 woman, which is really about womanhood, her children stand and bless her. Her husband praises her. And then this is what they say. There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. How about saying that to your mum today, hey? There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. So what's my point? Well, my point is that on this day of all days in the year, let us diligently seek God's heart in his word. Let us diligently meditate on what God says about women in his word, go all the way back to the creation record. Men and women are equal in God's sight. Men and women were given equal dominion, power and authority, and also accountability. The fact that woman is a helper, or as the King James Version says, a helpmeet to the man, does in no way make her inferior or subservient. Where Paul, in a sense, put women in their place in some of the epistles, he is dealing with specific issues in specific churches for a specific time. And there may be a need every now and then to do something similar today, but he's not making general statements about womanhood. 
for many, many years, I've, I've felt that Proverbs 31, verses 10 to the end of that proverb, is a powerful, powerful statement about how God has created women. And as I said a little earlier, this is not meant to be a checklist. So husbands, we're not meant to take Proverbs 31 and tick off how many of those criteria our wives meet. Because I don't believe that it was ever intended to describe a single woman. This is about womanhood. It's about the helper, this powerful, authoritative person who rescues us just as God does. So with those thoughts, could I invite you to enjoy a little community time.